You are Locked On Phillies, your daily Philadelphia Phillies podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. What's going on, guys? It is Friday, February 7th, 2020. This is Locked On Phillies. I'm Tim Kelly. There are four days until pitchers and catchers report to Clearwater which means that this was essentially the last week without some sort of Phillies baseball until next fall, maybe even later than that. There are 48 days until the Phillies begin their regular season and quite a few Blue Jays and Tigers and Yankees matchups in Clearwater before all that takes place. In any event, this was a relatively busy week for the Phillies, which means it's time to take a look at the three things the Phillies taught us this week, starting with number one, which is that Roy Halladay's number 34 will be retired. When the Phillies signed Bryce Harper last March, he ditched the number 34 that he had worn for the first seven seasons of his career in D.C., and went to number three. The reason he did it, as he said at his introductory press conference at Spectrum Field uh, last March, was that he thought Roy Halladay should be the last one to ever wear the number. Now, between him saying that and Roy Halladay retiring, A.J. Burnett, Aaron Harang, and Andrew Knapp had all worn the number, but Knapp switched numbers last year out of respect for Roy Halladay, And Monday, the Phillies announced that they're going to retire that number on the 10-year anniversary of Halliday's perfect game in Miami. You don't need me to remind you, but I'm going to remind you anyway because I know 2010 and 2011 were two special Phillies seasons. Halliday went 21-10 in uh, 2010 with a 2.44 ERA and a 6.2 F4. He won the National League Cy Young Award. Uh, In addition to the perfect game that he threw, he also became the second pitcher in MLB history to throw a no-hitter in the playoffs, and he did it in his first-ever playoff start, Game 1 of the NLDS against the Reds team that included Joey Votto, Scott Rowland, there was Jay Bruce was on the team, Orlando Cabrera, go down the list, there were some very good offensive pieces on that team. Roy Holiday just calmly threw a no-hitter and drove in a run in his first playoff appearance. 2011 is a little less remembered individually for Halliday, partially because Cliff Lee came back that year. To that point, it was Cole Hamill's best individual regular season as well. Roy Oswalt was there, Vance Worley. I mean, it, it was the, the season that the Phillies won the most regular season games in the history of the franchise. So it was more about the team that year, and understandably so. But it might have actually been the best season of his career. Fittingly, it was his age 34 season. He went 19-6 and six with a 2.35 ERA, a 2.20 FIP, and an 8.7 F4, which is staggering. He finished second in the National League Cy Young Award voting to Clayton Kershaw. Uh, I wrote a piece for Phillies Nation last summer, maybe it was the summer before, I don't remember, when he went on the Wall of Fame. Uh, detail, it was actually last summer we went into the Hall of Fame. Uh, detailing how I, I think there's a very legitimate case that he probably should have edged out Kershaw. In either case, even if, if he had, both those two holidays in Cooperstown, Clayton Kershaw is going to be there exactly five years after his career concludes, so it doesn't really matter. It, it puts into perspective how dominant he was that season, though, that he put up some of the best numbers of his career. Uh, I, I did a, a few different radio and podcast appearances this week to talk about how Holiday's number being retired, 
and some expressed to me that they thought his greatest holiday was in 2010 and 2011. He maybe didn't have enough of a tenure with the Phillies in terms of length to deserve his number being retired. Maybe that's true. If this decision was up to me, I'm not sure I would have retired his number. But I'm also not going to sit here and kick and scream about it. That's silly to me. If you ask most people outside of Philadelphia what the most iconic moment in Philly's history is, they wouldn't say Tug McGraw closing out the 1980 World Series. They wouldn't say Brad Lidge closing out the 2008 World Series. They wouldn't say anything about Ryan Howard or Chase Utley or Jimmy Rollins. They would 100% say Roy Halladay's postseason no-hitter. He's one of two players in the history of the team to throw a perfect game. In my lifetime, across the four major sports he's the most dominant Philadelphia athlete that I've ever seen so yes there's going to be a time and a place to discuss Chase Utley, Ryan Howard, Jimmy Rollins, Cole Hamels whoever getting their numbers retired but it would be so strange for me to come on here and rant about Roy Halladay having his number retired it's Roy Halladay like come on Uh, his number 34 is going to become the seventh number that the Phillies have retired. They have a few players. Chuck Klein falls into this category that, like, they have a don't have a specific number retired because they wore a, a million different numbers in their career. But they kind of have something up saying if they had a number, this would be retired essentially. But the six other numbers they have retired. Uh, Jackie Robinson's number 42, which is retired across all of baseball. Steve Carlton's number 32. Mike Schmidt's number 20. Robin Roberts' number 36. Jim Bunning's number 14. And Richie, Richie Ashburn's number one. The irony here is that when Roy Halladay was traded to the Phillies, he had to switch his number from the number 32 that he wore in Toronto because... It had been retired in Philadelphia to honor Steve Carlson. Now, his number 32 has also been retired in Toronto. So now he becomes someone in a very, very small group to have numbers retired by two different teams. But the crazy thing is not only does the the connection go from Halliday having to change his number to accommodate Carlton having had his number retired, Bryce Harper changed his number. And as someone pointed out to me on Twitter... It feels pretty likely someday Bryce Harper's number will eventually be retired by the Phillies, and he had to switch to number three because of Halliday. So whether you would have retired the number or think maybe somebody else is more deserving, Roy Halliday is one of the most dominant players to ever play for this team. And to me, to get worked up about this, it would be strange. The second thing that we learned this week is that the Chris Bryant trade rumors persist with the Phillies. Uh, The Dodgers reinforced their place as the favorite to win the National League East on Monday night when they completed a deal that allowed them to acquire Mookie Betts and David Price from the Red Sox. Uh, The Phillies, meanwhile, still appear to be a bubble playoff team, whether that means competing for the National League East or one of the two wildcard spots or maybe both. Of note, though, is that Bob Nightingale of USA Today said that with bets off the market, uh, the forefront or Chris Bryant is going to shift to the forefront of the trade market. And Bob Nightingale said that both the Phillies and the division rival Nationals have shown, quote, exploratory interest in Bryant, who's the Cubs third baseman. Uh, It's unclear 
if the Phillies' interest has at all intensified since early December when Bruce Levine of 670, the score in Chicago, reported that the Phillies had talks with the Cubs regarding Bryant, who's 28. Uh, he said at that time there didn't appear to be any traction. We don't know at this time if there's any sort of traction or if the Phillies were just doing due diligence. What has changed since September or since December is that we've gotten some clarity on Bryant's status as it relates to free agency. In January, he lost his servant's time grievance hearing against the Cubs, meaning he has two years left of team control before he can reach free agency as opposed to one. Uh, any team that would trade for Bryant right now before the 2020 season would be guaranteed at least two years with him. It's unclear what a Phillies trade package for Chris Bryant would look like, and the fact that uh, we haven't heard it get to that point leads me to think that's probably not especially realistic that a trade's going to come together. But the Red Sox certainly didn't seem to get full value for Mookie Betts. They did land some salary relief and avoided having him potentially leave in free agency for nothing. But I think history is going to look back at the return that the Red Sox got for someone who I think is on a track to be a future Hall of Famer and view it, quite frankly, as embarrassing. Chris Bryant isn't that good, but he's won an MVP. He's not as close to free agency, and that could make this the perfect time for the Cubs to maximize his value. Now, I said this earlier in the offseason. If the Phillies had a 27-year-old or 28-year-old third baseman that had helped end in a 108-year World Series drought, and they were saying, oh, I don't know if we have enough money to keep him, this city would lose its mind. And I'm sure Chicago is too, and I'm sure I know for a fact Boston is. So uh, it's just crazy to discuss it. But that makes you think, knowing that there's some value still in Chris Bryant, that he's a little further away from free agency, and that there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on this trade regardless if the Cubs make it. It makes you think that just acquiring Alec Bohm as the at the forefront of the deal isn't going to be enough. Obviously, the Phillies would also be taking on the $18.6 million that Chris Bryant's due this season. Taking on Brian alone would also push the Phillies over the luxury tax threshold. So it's hard to imagine them saying, all right, in addition to Chris Bryant, we'll take on Jason Hayward's deal or some sort of bad contract like that. I just I don't see it happening. And even if they were willing to do that, which again would put them maybe in the highest payroll in the history of baseball, which I mean, right now there's no indication that that's where they're going to approach before the season starts. It's hard to tell if the Cubs would deem Alec Bohm and you know a few other pieces for Chris Bryant and taking on salary or losing salary in the case of the Cubs by taking off Jason Hayward. There's a possibility, I suppose, that you could uh, add in Scott Kingery or Adam Hazley or whoever. Now, I don't count those two in the same category, but my point being, you need some young, controllable players to come up. You cannot simply have every player on this team, unless the Phillies make a commitment that no other team in the history of baseball has made, that we're just going to blow hundreds of millions of dollars and not worry about the luxury tax. If they do that, great. Could the Phillies afford to do that? Probably, but I mean, there's no indication they're going to do that. If they are operating on the, if we go over the luxury tax, it's only going to be by a little theory. They need players like Scott Kingery. They need players like Alec Bohm, Spencer Howard, whoever you would need. I don't know what's going to happen with Adam Hazley, but they need players like that that are young, cheap, and that they drafted to come up and have success. I, I mean, of course, Chris Bryant is an excellent player. You would get better by adding Chris Bryant. 
I just I, I do think there's a realistic question. Even if you add Chris Bryant, not only are you not the favorite to win the World Series or to win the National League pennant and get to the World Series, I don't even know that you're the favorite to win the National League East. And if you're making that type of investment, you better be damn sure that you're good enough to do that. And I just I don't know if they would. Now, of course, if they don't trade for Chris Bryant, it leaves the door open for other teams to do so. Nightingale mentioned the Nationals, who lost Anthony Rendon in free agency. The Braves lost Josh Donaldson, their star third baseman in free agency. They certainly have the type of farm system to make a competitive offer to this point. There's no indication that they're going to do that, but they can flip that switch at any point, whether it's now or at some point during the season. Cubs position players are set to report to spring training on February 16th. That's in 10 days. There's no indication currently as to whether the team views that as a deadline for whether they're going to trade Brian or not. I don't know if once he reports, they say, we're putting this on the shelf at least until the summer. I don't know. I'll say this, though. Last offseason... When I wrote ad nauseum about Bryce Harper and Manny Machado, it's because I thought that the Phillies were going to land one of the two, and they did. You haven't heard me talk that much about Chris Bryant, Nolan Arenado, or even Josh Donaldson and Anthony Rendon when they were free agents because I never believed the Phillies were going to land any of them. That can change. It did right around this time last year when things came together pretty quickly and the Phillies traded for JT Real Muto. But my feeling right now is that this lineup... Sure, it would be nice to make a major addition, of course, but I generally think that this offense with a mid-level addition this summer can probably win. If I'm making another major investment, it's not in a position player. It is in a front-line starter to give you a legitimate 1-2-3 with Zach Wheeler, Aaron Nola, and whoever it would be. And then if Spencer Howard pans out, (laughs) the more the merrier, but... I, I think if you're making that type of investment in another 20-plus million-dollar player, you need to be sure that your starting pitching is elite. The final thing that we learned this week is that Andrew McCutcheon hopes to be ready for opening day. Uh, McCutcheon obviously led off the 2019 season in about as perfect of a fashion as possible. He had a 428-foot home run. Uh, as someone that was down there, I just... There's no, I can't think of any moment I've ever seen at a sporting event in my life where I've been there that was more amazing than that moment with all that excitement for him to launch a home run. And it was like a no doubt about it, but it was still one of those moments where you're like, is this really happening? So he did that. It was awesome. I don't think he's going to do that in his first at bat this season, but he did say this week to Scott Lauber of the Philadelphia Inquirer that, quote, that's the plan in regards to being ready for opening day. He went on to say, I can't tell you 100% I'll be ready. I don't know. If I had a silver ball, whatever they call it, I'd be able to say, I'm just going to keep working to be ready for opening day. If he is indeed ready to return from an ACL injury that ended his 2019 season last June, I projected in an article for Phillies Nation this week that he'll lead off and play left field. He's going to hit in a lineup that includes Bryce Harper, JT Real Muto, Gene Segura, Reese Hoskins, and Didi Gregorius. For the Phillies to make the postseason, we can have all the best-case scenarios uh, in our minds about what the Phillies' rotation could look like, what the Phillies' bullpen could look like. Ultimately, if this is going to be a playoff team and maybe more, it's going to be number one because they have an elite offense and the type of offense we thought that they would have last season. So while it's true that Andrew McCutcheon isn't the same player that won the MVP in 2013, 
looking at that way does a disservice to how effective he was last year. In 59 games, he had 258, 10 home runs, 29 RBIs, 43 walks, and a one and a half war. He was putting up the type of production that would have made him worthy of at least a look for the National League All-Star team had he not torn his ACL. He also brought in edge and just kind of like this winning feeling that I think it reminded me a little bit of Aaron Rowland or Jason Worth. And that was missing after he's gone because there's only certain guys that have that. It doesn't necessarily have to be your best player on the team. And I think a lot of times it ends up being outfielders. And Andrew McCutcheon had that type of edge that he brought to the Phillies early in the season. So keeping his bat in the lineup is one reason that's important to put as little stress as possible on him defensively. And even with questions about Adam Hazley's ability to be an everyday center fielder on a contending team, I don't expect Andrew McCutcheon to be in center field in 2020. That doesn't mean there won't be a few games or a few innings where he has to go there for for what for whatever reason. But last year it took extenuating circumstances that probably won't happen this year. And beyond that, not only is he a 33-year-old coming off a torn ACL, but he has negative 45 defensive runs saved in center field since the start of the 2016 season. At this stage, Andrew McCutcheon is a corner outfielder, and that is fine. In January, at the press conference where the Phillies introduced Didi Gregorius and Zach Wheeler, Matt Klintak told me that he believed the Phillies could win the National League East in 2020. And one of the reasons he cited for that belief is that quite a bit went wrong in 2019 and the Phillies still won 80 games. To win the division in 2020, the Phillies are probably going to need at least 90 wins. And frankly, to win a wild card, they might need at least 90 wins. And to get there, they're going to need McCutcheon, who would certainly fall under the umbrella of things that went wrong in 2019. They are going to need him to stay healthy and be productive. You can follow me on Twitter at Tim Kelly Sports and read my work on philliesnation.com and radio.com. I will talk to you guys next week.